0: Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Uh, next week we'll be in First Peter. We'll get, back, we'll get back there. I've got one more sermon today, and it really is along the line here of um, there, my, my burdened soul found liberty at, at Calvary. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. In recent weeks, I've preached a series of sermons. It's kind of been a three-part series, but it's been jumbled up a little bit. We started with a message called, The Greatness of God in the Stars. And uh, then we went, The Greatness of God on the Earth. And now we're going to go even deeper, The Greatness of God in our hearts. And uh, the implication of my message this morning is how He saved us. The aim of my sermon has really been simple I've sought to remind us again of how great God is so that we might worship Him afresh and anew with greater passion than ever before, with greater desire and more eagerness for Him. You know, how easy is it for us to go out at night in cloudy Rockford and look up and say, Oh, that's nice. Look at the stars. It's pretty. But if you knew what the stars are about and understood their their distance from us, their incredible size, the the variety and the wonder and the beauty of that. When you understand that, then you go out and look at the stars and say, wow, that's incredible. Our God is an awesome God who created that, right? That's what I tried to do with my first sermon. How easy is it for us to look around at the earth and see the, the plants and the animals and say, oh, isn't that a cute squirrel over there? What a pretty flower this is. But if, if you really looked at it and understood everything that was going on with the intricacies of how God made the DNA to work and the photosynthesis and the oxygen and the carbon dioxide and the sugars and the energy, you'd and, and it, say, wow, there are some amazing things going on here in the, the ecosystem of our earth and God is amazing how everything functions so perfectly, how God provides perfectly for everything. That's what I try to do in my message, The Greatness of God on the Earth. And this morning, we come to look at the greatness of God on our hearts. My aim is to, once again, stir your hearts to wonder and praise and love for God for the work that He's done in your hearts in saving you from your sin. How easy is it for us, especially maybe after years of being a Christian, to say, oh, I'm saved. Isn't that nice? But if you knew and understood the what sort of work God did in your heart, you could say, wow, what a, a wonderful Savior that I have. I can't believe He's changed my hearts and minds to, to, to have desires for Him and to pursue Him. I, I'm so thankful that He's saved me. I, I believe in Him and trust Him. I want to worship Him with my whole heart. That's my aim this morning. Okay? I hope I see smiles on your face at the end of, of my message. I want you to go forth from this place singing Amazing Grace... How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I want you to come this morning to the grips of what sort of wretched sinner you are. And I want for you to marvel at the changing work that God has done in your soul. I want you to leave this place singing, And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood. Died He for me who caused His pain? For me to Him who death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? And really, my message this morning is is fundamental to all of Christian living. The more we reflect upon our salvation, the more we reflect upon the cross of Christ, the more we reflect upon our own sin and God's work in our life, the more we truly understand and comprehend the greatness of God's work in our souls, we will live differently. And in fact, it is interesting that, that we tend to stray from that. I've been the church. We've been there, done that. We, we lose the marvels of our salvation. Why is it new Christians are so zealous? And old Christians have lost It's because they've lost the wonder and the awe. That's one reason why we come to church each Sunday. So to be reminded that again afresh with the people of God, And I want to remind you of that work. Now, there are certainly some among us who know not of that experience. You've not repented of your sins. You've not believed in Christ. You've not known God's saving work in your heart. This is you this morning. Know that you might be an outsider today. And you just might be saying, well, that's for them. Well, I invite you in. I invite you to repent of your sin and believe in Christ that you might experience this in your heart as well. This is directed to us who believe. Now, to get to the point where we're thrilled with our work and our souls, we need to address two issues. We need to address the issue of our heart and we need to address the issue of of God's salvation. We need to realize our heart is far more wicked than we think it is. It really is. And we need to realize that God's salvation is so much better than we think it is. Because it is. And I believe that your response in worship to God will be directly proportional to the extent to which you understand those things. And if you grasp the depth of your sin and what God has saved you from, I think that your heart will abound with thanksgiving and praise like Paul did in 1 Timothy 1.12. I thank the Lord Jesus for my salvation. The worst of sinners, by His grace He saved me. And I think if you truly grasp the power of God in changing your soul, the work that He's done in you, it, it will overflow in praise and adoration to Him. And this is the very thing that will give you strength to live from day to day. It's a bit like this. Suppose yourself to be walking along, you know, you're walking along with a friend, and you're talking. And all of a sudden, you start to stumble and start to fall, and your friend grabs you and it stops you from falling, and and you get up. And what were you going to say to your friend? Hey, thanks, thanks, I appreciated that. Thanks for helping me. And after you're saved from stumbling. You might be thinking, you know what, I have such superior reflexes. I probably wouldn't have fallen anyway. And, and um, you know, he did kind of <laughs> grab my arm a little hard. And, you know, I'm thankful, but I don't think I really need the help anyway. Are, are you going to go home and, and tell others about how your, your buddy helped save you from stumbling? I don't think so. Now suppose a different scenario. Suppose you're hiking up in uh, Colorado. And, and you're, walking, you're hiking you know, way up the mountains, you're up 11,000 feet, hiking with your buddy, and you're walking on the precipice of a big, of a big um, cliff right here, and you're walking on this little path, you know, scrunched in like this, and, and you trip and stumble and fall, and you free-fall about 100 feet, and you start tumbling down, and you fall in some brush, and you keep going, and you're tumbling all around, and finally, you know, after falling down maybe 500 feet or so, you find yourself stuck, and you feel your pants kind of, ooh, what's that? And, you, and as, you, as you gain a sense of what happened, you look down and there's a 500-foot drop right there. And, and you're on this, this tree that's leaning over this, this precipice and you're only caught by your pants. And, and as you move, first of all, your body aches because you feel like you've broken several bodies, several, several bones in your body. You, know, you can hardly feel your, your leg anymore. You're spitting up blood. You, you barely even yell for help. But as you move, the tree goes... And you lay there for hours as your buddy traverses down the hill and looks for you. And there's so much brush and there's so much um, you know, trees and shrubs that, that he, he can't really find you. And he's yelling out for your name and you're saying, I'm here, I'm here. And you, can't, you, can't even, you can't even tell him that, that where you are. Finally, he finds you. Sees you. Says, Thankfully, you're alive. He finds you, and he says, I, "I tell you what. Let me call for help." He dials 911, <laughs> but 911 at 1,100 square. What do I say? 11,000 feet isn't going to help you very much. So he says, "I tell you what. Let me go get help." And so he walks back up the hill, and he walks down. He walks into the night to go to finally where he gets cell phone coverage. And early the next morning, he finally contacts somebody. They they get some um, emergency crews. They come out. The helicopter comes, you know, and they've they got this big long rope down there, and by this time you're barely conscious. You know, you've lost a lot of blood, you lost a lot of fluid, your internal damage, you're barely conscious, but you see this helicopter coming and these rescue crew then take you, medevac you off to the hospital where they operate on you for 12 hours, and you recover in the hospital for another two months, and then you're in physical therapy another six months or so as, as you recover. Now, let me ask you, how are you going to respond to your friend? How are you going to respond to your doctors? I think you say, Whoa, thank you for saving my life. I, I about plunged to my death, but I, I owe it all to you. And thank you, doc- You might send, write them notes. You might send them gifts. You might overflow. And, and how would you respond even to your friends? They say, Oh, do you got a scar on your arm? What's that scar about? You say, Let me tell you about my scar. And you tell about that one. September afternoon, back in 2008, when you were walking along the way and you fell and you tell the whole story and and your eyes just light up and you're so thankful even to be alive for another day. In the same way, we ought to be just overjoyed and thrilled with praise to God for the salvation that He has rescued us from. In fact, as I describe things, you might even see that your predicament was far worse than hanging out on a broken tree limb caught by the edge of your pants over a 500-foot precipice drop for days. Because, as Jonathan Edwards says, really, we are dangling over the pit of hell where God in His sovereign pleasure can at any moment let us go. John Piper recently preached on Colossians 3.15. Paul says, "...and be thankful." And be thankful. He said this. He says, I don't think Paul's throwing away words when he says be thankful. He says, You just got to know the gospel. You got to be blown away. If you aren't in hell tomorrow, you should be dancing. We've just started to take it for granted. That's what John Piper says. It's, it's my aim this morning. Any lack of enthusiasm that you have for God is because you've taken your salvation for granted. And my aim this morning is to help you not to take it. For granted. I want you to see the greatness of the work that God has done in your heart that we respond rightly to Him. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles finally to Romans chapter 3. Perhaps you're there. The notes and the bulletin have you there. I want to begin looking this morning at your heart, our sin. Call it whatever you want. This is your heart. And this isn't good news. In fact, it's bad news. In fact, the news hardly gets worse than this. I know of no better place in all the Scriptures to point to our sin than this passage here. The book of Romans is a treatise on our salvation. And and, uh, Paul starts the first three chapters, two and a half chapters, talking about our sin. And right here in chapter 3, verses 9 and following, we see the culmination of his his argument. In chapter 1, he described the sin of the Gentiles. Chapter 2, he described the sin of the Jews. And now he lumps them all together. You can see the right in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews better than they, Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under the lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes a knowledge of sin. We see here in verses 10-18, through nine verses, just quoting from the Old Testament, six different locations proving His point that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And these verses just come rapid fire, rapid fire, rapid fire. In Paul's day, the Jew and the Greeks... We were about opposite end of the moral spectrum as far as you could get. The Greeks, on the one hand, are those that knew nothing about God. They had their pantheon of gods, but these gods were not like the true God at all. They were jealous. They were like people. They were um, selfishly motivated. They didn't have all power. They were constantly haggling. They didn't know about God. They weren't of the chosen race. Chosen nation, the people of Jews—they were without the written revelation of God. As such, they were strangers to the covenant, far off from God, without God in the world. And when you're without God in the world, your behavior demonstrates it. Without God means you have no accountability. You do whatever was right in your own eyes. You live for the here and now. You seek a life of pleasure, willingly stepping on others to accomplish your own purposes and your own plans for your own pleasures. In many cases, those without God, as Second 2 Peter 2.12 says, become like unreasoning animals and creatures of instinct, born to be captured and killed. See, when you refuse to acknowledge God, He gives you over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. As God did. Romans 1.28 This is a life of the Greeks in Paul's day. This is the life of many Americans today without God. When you look at such people, it's easy to see how they're under sin. You don't have to have even a critical judgmental spirit at all to see this. There's no desire of God to step in their place, in a place of worship. You drove here this, this morning. I mean, how many people did you see out who were going at all the church? How many people did you see mowing your lawn, taking a walk? They, don't, they just don't have a desire for God. They don't love God taking heed of the Scriptures. There's a vast ignorance of the Scriptures today because they don't love God. They don't want to read His love letter to us. No heart to glorify God. God's not even in, in their thinking. The Greeks are under condemnation of sin. But Paul didn't say just the Jew, just the Greeks out there. It's shocking here. He brings to the Jews in here, both Jews and Greeks. The The Jews here in Paul's day were the ones completely who dedicated their lives to God, received the law of God, studied it meticulously so as to live their life exactly righteous before God in every way that they could. They lived separate from the world according to what God told them to do. They wore their clothes in exact accordance to the law. They they wore tassels on the end of their garments. How many of you are wearing tassels today? That's what they did to keep the law. They did it. They, they didn't wear garments upon which two kinds of material mixed together. No cotton polyester mix for them. That's what I was told. Leviticus 19.19 19. They prepared their bodies in exact accordance to law. They let their sideburns grow. They, they weren't to cut them. They let their beards grow because they weren't to cut their beards. Not making cuts on their bodies or not having tattoos. Eating only kosher food is all they did. They celebrated Jewish festivals every year. Yom Kippur, the Passover, Unleavened Bread, Feast of Booths, Purim. They kept the Sabbath every Saturday. Being careful to attend the, the services in the synagogue every Saturday. Devoting the day to the reading and study of the Scriptures. Being careful not to do any work at all. See, when God said to do it, the Jews did it. Never was there a nation more righteous than the Jews. And yet, All those extremely righteous, externally righteous people never escaped the fact that they were under sin, is what verse 9 says. Because the Jews didn't understand that cleaning the outside doesn't do anything to clean the inside. When Jesus encountered the Pharisees, he pronounced his woes against them. Woe to you, whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones. So all these things they were doing on the outside so as to conform themselves to the, to the ways of God wasn't dealing with their heart. They were dealing with the externals. He said, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. In other words, it's not the outside that tells the whole story. It's the inside, the heart that matters. And that was Paul's point in verse 28 of chapter 2. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. See, you're not a Jew by, by being outwardly circumcised, but He is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart. And circumcise your heart. Cut out that that is bad from your heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And His praise is not from men, but from God. And, and I think this regarding the Jews direct, almost directly applies to us. We're church folk here. Right? We, we're the people who hear God's Word. We have the revelation of God But hear this. It doesn't matter if you look externally perfect in the church world. Attending Sunday school every Sunday of your life. Winning all your attendance awards. Winning the the Timothy Award in Awana. Memorizing all these verses. Reading your Bible every day. Never having tasted alcohol. Never experimented with drugs. Abstaining from sexual sins and bad music and bad movies. And staying away from that. And and being involved in the church. See, because... God looks not as man sees. God looks to the heart. And when the data comes in, the verdict's not good. We're all under sin. In other words, we all have failed to follow the law of God and abide by it. That's what what He said here in verse ten. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become useless. There's none who does good. Not even one. These these are talking about the exhaustive extent of sin. It's everywhere. All are under sin. Oh, there may be some good deeds, there may be some kind deeds, but deep down in the heart it's not so pure. We all have selfish desires, we all have sinful desires. We want to view pornography on the internet. We want to see bad movies. We want others at home to serve us. We want to obtain riches for ourselves. We want to spend our days in selfish pleasures. We want our bodies to be pampered. We want our egos to be built up. We don't really care for others around us. Any experience you have that's contrary to this is the grace of God. Which is my second point, but... But I get, I get ahead to that. In fact, even if you read here in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, you see that, that, uh, that David isn't just merely talking about everybody. He's talking about these wicked people are like that, but, but he himself knew himself to be righteous because he was a follower of God. Because there is a change that God brings in our hearts so that we aren't these kind of people. He said, no one seeks for God. Are we seeking for God? I believe we are. Because God has brought a a change in our heart. But apart from God bringing that change in our heart, we will all be here. That's the thrust of everything that that He's saying. When God looks down, He doesn't see righteous people. When God looks down upon us who believe in Christ, He sees wicked people saved and redeemed and changed and transformed by the power of the cross, by the power of the Gospel. In fact, Genesis 6.5 says, "...there was a day when the Lord looked down upon the sons of men." and he saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, the, the breadth of sin. And then he looked at the depth of sin. He said, every thought and intention of the heart is only evil continually. Look at the days of Noah. He says, how are people? Well, vast number of sinners, and in each one of them, deep, deep sin in all of them. And you know what God did in the days of Noah, right? He destroyed the earth because His wrath was against them. And don't think that anything's changed between then and now. Oh, now we have good hearts. No. God has been merciful so as not to flood the earth again, because he's promised the rainbow. But there's coming a day, it says in Second Peter, when he'll destroy the world by fire. Our hearts are like those who live in the days of Noah. Our hearts are just as sinful. God's wrath is boiling up, and there'll be a point where it overflows upon us. Because we're under sin apart from Christ. And your heart is bad. You just need to look at what you say. After giving some blanket statements about the extent of sin, Paul heads to the mouth. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under the lips. whose mouth is full of bitterness and cursing. You want to know what someone's heart's like? Just tune your ear. We have a stethoscope. That, that sits there and hears the lub, 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 lub. And that's your physical heart, okay? But your ears can hear the spiritual heart of people. You just listen to what they say. Because our speech comes from our heart. And which one of you have learned to control your tongue? Yeah? Yeah? No. Nobody has. How easy is it to express our grumbling and complaining with our mouth? expressing our displeasure with the will of God. Grumbling is God Himself. James spoke clearly about how no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. So our tongue is. deadly poison. It's a picture here, verse 13. The poison of asps is on their lips. Listen, if you've lived as long as I have, and I'm young to some of you, I'm old to some of you kids, but... I have lived long enough to see and experience venom from people's mouths. I've seen it a lot. I've felt the poison try to enter my own soul. And I have seen my own venom go out in wrath upon others as well. You ought not to be surprised when those things come out of your mouth. Because your heart's an ugly place it's an ugly place have you ever looked under your refrigerator recently try sometime to remove your refrigerator away from the wall that's our heart it may refrigerator might look clean right we, we clean it and we pour store food there or underneath our stove it looks bad Paul's list of wickedness continues 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The the path of peace they've not known. All you can do is watch the news, read the newspapers, listen to the radio, and all you'll see is these things feet swift to shed blood, destruction in their paths, people willing to destroy people to obtain their ends, conflict, strife upon people. People say, But Steve, that's the world. That that just happens out there. No, friends, it happens in the church too. People want to step on others. They want to press forward with their agendas. God is a restraint upon our hearts sure enough in the church. But many of the things described here in 15 through 17 take place in churches too. Why? Because there's no fear of God before their eyes. If we had God before our eyes at all time, um we would not sin quite as bad. The reason the Jews and the Gentiles and the world um, sin the way they do is because they have no fear of God before their eyes. And when God doesn't control your thoughts and He's not predominant there, you'll gladly sin. And for us who know God, when we sin, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness and believe, oh, God's not really looking. God's not, I can do this. Now, some of you may be here today. Think, come on, Steve. It's not that bad. I've not shed blood like this is talking about. I keep to myself. I want peace, and that's what I strive for every day. I'm not that bad. In fact, I'm I'm pretty good. If you say that it's only because your heart is really bad that you've deceived yourself into thinking you're pretty good, because Jeremiah 17 says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who? Can understand it. And the conclusion is this 19 and 20. Whatever law says, it speaks to those who are under law, so every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for through the law comes a knowledge of sin. As you read your Bibles, you will see and detect, and understand and discover. The sin of your heart. That's one of the purposes of the law. One is to model, a, show forth a perfect life which would prophesy of Christ to come, but another is to show us a knowledge of our own sin and where we are. And the more you read, the more you see that the situation is a lot worse than you think it is. The Bible describes this worse than a guy hanging over a canyon the Bible describes us as born in sin. Bible describes us as being dead in sin. Ephesians 2.1 And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. When it came to the truth of God, before Christ we were dead, we were unresponsive, we had hearts of stone, our eyes were blinded, we considered the gospel to be foolish, we walked in darkness and we were lost. But God in His grace and His power brought salvation to us. And it's here where we see the greatness of God. The the, the bigger we see our sin, the greater will we see God. So, anyone up for good news? Let's hit the good news now. We've seen His heart, our heart, your heart. Let's now look at His salvation. 21 through 31. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time, so he' be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? no, but by a law of faith, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of a law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. These verses are really paramount of importance in all the Bible. They've been called the Acropolis of the Christian Faith. Luther called this the the central place in the epistle the whole Bible. William Cooper was converted through these words. Piper said, if I were asked what's the most important paragraph in the Bible, this paragraph would be the name. It goes the very root of the Christian Gospel and lays bare the heart of God like few other texts. So let's, let's dig into this. This is His salvation for us. Verses 21 through 31 describe the work of God. It is what God did for us. God has done a work to accomplish our salvation. We've done nothing to merit salvation. It's the point of verse 27, right? Where is boasting? Boasting's excluded. There's no boasting that we can have regarding our salvation. It's entirely the work of God. I think one of the ways you can, you can understand this passage is to think about travel. You're, you're traveling in a car on the highway up, up, up in Colorado. Again, we used that illustration and you're coming to a mountain, it's called Sinai, and you need to get up and over this, this law of God. And, and you realize this road which is going to take you up and over that actually hit, hits a dead end because you can't get up and over the, the works righteousness law to get to God who's on the other side of the mountain. You, you can't do it. And so finally you reach a, a point of despair and you, you look behind you and, and you see Jesus coming and, and He's got this whole entourage of Of vehicles and drilling equipment and and dynamite and uh, paving equipment. And what he does, he goes straight into that hill, attacking it head on, digs this big hole and tunnel for us slightly downhill. And so that uh, we can enter through the way of Christ by faith and just travel through to get to God. Totally different way, still gets to God, but doesn't go up and over, goes through the work of Christ. That may be a, a poor illustration, but it It shows the dichotomy here in verse 21. It says, Now, apart from the law, it's the righteousness of God that's been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. See, it's apart from the law. It's not up and over. Rather, it's through. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction. For all come short of the glory of God. That's the point of what talking about here. Verse 23 says, We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But through faith we're reconciled to Him. And verse 24 speaks about how it's grace. We are justified. We are made righteous in His sight as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There is God has justified us as a gift. He has purchased us. He has accomplished it. He has done it all. That's what grace means, right? It's all of God. It's none of us. Christ Jesus purchased our redemption for us. He purchased our salvation. He, he bought us. And in doing so, He changed us. And, and you know, At this point in my message, I do want to take a, a slight segue to think about the ways in which God has changed us. I spoke earlier about how we are, are dead... In our sins, but it's God who has made us alive. <laughs> Here's a doll. What's the doll's name again? This is this is Sarah, and um, we had about as much spiritual life as Sarah had has. Dead. Imagine now she's Pinocchio. Remember the story of Pinocchio? Geppetto. Carved Pinocchio, made in this, this marionette where he can and along came the blue fairy. And What did the blue fairy do? Made him alive. Gave him life. That is what God has done for us in our salvation. He's taken us spiritually dead like a doll, and he's made us alive in Christ. In salvation he changed us by giving us sight to see the gospel clearly. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We're born. We're born with Satan's got his hands over our eyes. So we can't see. We're stumbling in darkness. It's because the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. Right? and I'm trying to walk over here. I, I don't even know where the, the edge is. Oh, there it is. Okay. We are blind. And then what happens? God takes the blinders off so we can see. We don't take them off. We don't rip the devil's hands off and say, now I can see. No, it's God who says, I'm devil. Here, let me take your hands away so he can see the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ. Maybe you remember the story when Jesus gave the blind man sight. He a conversation. Spit on the ground. Made clay of the spittle. Applied it to his eyes. Says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he did. He went away and washed. He came back seeing. And what Jesus did to him physically, He has done to us who believe spiritually. He's ripped those blinders off of our eyes so that now we can see what we could never see before. He's removed the veil so we now see the light of the Gospel, the glory of Christ. And we can say, one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. And that's what God does when He purchases us. He, he gives us life when we're dead. He, he makes us see when we're blind. But He does more. He's not just dealing with... Um, deadness to life and seeing. He also has an illustration of Scripture about um, making us responsive in our minds. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. If he doesn't have a spiritual mind, he cannot understand them. They just go on a different wavelength. They just don't make sense. In our natural state, we can't understand it. And not understanding them, we don't accept them. But God... This is what He's done for us. He has changed our minds so that we might understand it. And now that God has performed spiritual brain surgery on us to give us the ability to understand, to give us the spiritual brain cells needed to understand the Gospel, we now understand. Note that that's far more than God just teaching us what's right. Right? See, God in our salvation isn't just one who, is, who stood up and taught. Oh, now we get it. <laughs> he taught it and they took you into the operating room and He changed your brain so that you'd have a spiritual brain, a spiritual mind to discern and accept. That's what God has done. We call it brain surgery. But it extends even beyond our minds. It extends to our hearts as well. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied at a time when God would do something Within his people. Thus says the Lord Ezekiel thirty six, twenty six. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I grabbed this from my lawn this morning. This is what's in us pre Christ. What buried underneath her. And it's what God does is he, he lays this out on the table, and he he takes his scalpel and he cuts cuts right down the middle and opens up the sternum and he finds this thing in there. And he takes it, he takes that out and then he gives a heart of flesh, a lub-dub, 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 70 times a minute, fixes it right in there, puts it right in there, heals us up and stores us up and he gives us a new heart. A soft heart to the things of God, not a hard heart. A soft heart is what God does. But it even goes beyond that. Beyond just death to life, sight to seeing, mind to understanding, a new heart. Another imagery in scripture is, is people being new creatures. Ezekiel thirty-seven speaks about this, this imagery of speaking to, to dry bones. This people of Israel brought these bones are just kind of there, and they hear the gospel, and the Lord God will make them alive. Behold, I will cause breath to enter that you enter you, so that you may come to life. I'll put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. Here it is what God is is changing us and and transforming us. There's just the imagery used in Ezekiel which is consistent through Scripture. In fact, it even says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, what is He? He's a a new creation. Something that's that's new, that wasn't there before. God works something in our hearts. We're different than we used to be Theologians call this regeneration. A complete palingenesis. Again being born. Born again. Regeneration. We're regenerated again. It's what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the Kingdom of God. You must be born again. And Nicodemus had some difficulty with the imagery. He says, "How, how can you be born again a second time? But the illustration Jesus gives is completely consistent with all the illustrations of Scripture. God does a work in our hearts. A radical transformation that God does so that we might believe. And how does it happen? I don't know. But it does. Jesus says, "...the wind blows where it wishes." You hear the sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. We know about the wind. We know that it blows. We don't quite know how much it's going to blow or where it's going to blow. So it is with the Spirit of God. He blows and moves and transforms people according to His sovereign pleasure. And that's the greatness of God accomplishing His salvation in us. Well we come back from the segue here. But that's all about this paragraph speaks about how God is the one who did this work in our hearts to save us. Then it speaks about here in verse twenty five and following how exactly he accomplished the work. See because God can, can be kind to us. He can do these things to us, he can transform us because of the work of Christ. Christ turned the wrath away. From us to Him, Jesus was the propitiation for our sin, which is what 25 speaks about. Jesus, God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. That's just packed, but here it is. He's displayed publicly for all the world to see upon the cross as a propitiation. That is a wrath-turning-away sacrifice in His blood. In other words, that God punished Christ instead of us. And in punishing Him, He's totally satisfied. His wrath, though at one time was poured out in the world with a flood, and one time will be poured out upon the world's fire, is poured out in Christ for us who believe so that we'll be rescued from that. The Lord knows how to rescue from temptation those who seek Him. Then verse 26 is an awesome verse. pulls together Old Testament and New Testament. He says, "...this demonstration I say of His righteousness at the present time." I'm sorry, this was to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over sins previously committed. There was a problem when Abraham sinned. And did Abraham sin? Yes. There a problem when David sinned. Did David sin? Yes. There a problem when all the saints of the Old Testament, whenever they sinned, God just kind of turned, a, turned an eye passed over it because He knew that there was going to be a day where He was going to pay for their blood in Christ. And that's what He did. He paid in Christ for the sins that He'd passed over so that He might be just. Because just to pass over sins is not righteous. God, being a just God, cannot just simply pass over sins. It's got to be dealt with. They're dealt with at the cross. For the sins previously committed, dealt with in the cross for our sins today. For the demonstration, I say, verse 26, of His righteousness at the present time so He'll be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There it is. He's just and he's punished sin. He's justified us through faith in Christ. And I ask you as we close have you experienced this work of God in your heart? Do you understand the greatness of God and what he has done for you? Do you have faith in Jesus? That's what it's about. Let's pray. Lord, I pray You would so grip us with Your salvation that we can do nothing else but worship You and adore You for Your goodness and grace, Your kindness that You've lavished upon us. I pray that we would go forth singing and can it be that I should gain interest in my Savior's blood. May we realize it's amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, would die for me? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head. I pray these things would stir our hearts and our minds, not just today as we sing, but as we go forth from this place to fellowship together, as we go forth even beyond here to spend time with our families this week, this weekend, Memorial Day, tomorrow, a day with our family. I pray You would help us and strengthen us. I'll always keep the salvation of Christ before our hearts and our minds. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.